The government has clearly lost control of the economy. We are looking at a conservative majority of 86. Why is the Prime Minister making a bad situation worse for working people by hammering them with a cut to universal credit and a tax rise? Will you shut up, up man? From 2 till 4, every single Wednesday, bringing you the news without the spin, the stories behind the headlines, through interviews, discussion and more. Politics Unboxed on Expression FM. Hello and welcome to the Politics Unboxed podcast. My name is Rhys and today you're going to be listening to a very special episode of PU The Interview and... Well, I would have explained more about it earlier, but uh, it came about at quite short notice, but very, very, very welcome surprise. This is an interview with the representative or prospective representative, i.e. candidate, for Congress in Ohio's 7th Congressional District, Matthew Diemer. First off, thank you very much, Matthew, for agreeing to come on to the podcast for this. I know there's a lot of time, or rather not a lot of time left before your big election day, with it being tomorrow. Um, I want to ask, how, how have you been feeling? How's your, your campaign been going so far? Campaign's been going good, you know, so we're feeling good. We're going to, to tomorrow. Um, there is, you know, a lot of energy out there in the U.S. Um, on um, a lot of different issues. So uh, we're just, uh, you know, plugging along and can't wait to see how everything closes out at the end of, the end of day tomorrow. Feeling confident? Feeling confident. Um, but again, you know, we just have a lot of work to do between today and tomorrow and, and make sure that we're getting out there shaking as many hands as possible and uh, getting out those votes. Absolutely. Obviously, with this being the first midterm election under Joe Biden, uh, it's a big day for the Democrats tomorrow. There's a lot on the line. I want to start with some sort of broad brush questions and then get into the real specifics of, of your campaign for Ohio's 7th. Um, yeah, sure. so with the Democrats currently holding that trifecta of both houses of Congress and the presidency, it looks like your party are heading into this election with sort of everything to lose. How's it been feeling on, on the ground with Democrats? So is there a general feel of, yes, we can we can do this, we can hold these seats that we need to and press forward? Or is it a bit more of, crikey, the Republicans are coming? You, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's funny the way you say it, you, you phrase it. Look, I think that nobody uh, understands what's going to happen in this midterm election. So there's been a lot of um, uh, polling, a lot of ideas of what's important to voters this time um, and what is going to be on top of people's minds when they go into that uh, voting box. Uh, but I honestly don't think that any one party or one person or one campaign knows how that's going to weigh uh, or tip the scales. And so I think that when we're talking about Republicans and Democrats, uh, traditionally, obviously, as you know, since you're asking the question, uh, uh, the party that's in power uh, with the presidency usually loses uh, some sort of ground in the co in Congress in the midterm election. With that said, uh, we don't know how that's going to turn out or if it will actually uh, come to fruition like everybody expects it, expects it to happen. I will say though, there's some key races that uh, obviously both parties are keeping an eye on that I think will set the tone for a, a few election cycles to come if they go if they go a different way than everybody's expecting. For example, uh, the Warnock Walker race in Georgia. Uh, if Herschel Walker beats Raphael Warnock, that is a horrible sign. Uh, there's also the Tim Ryan uh, JD Vance race here. If Tim Ryan in the race that he's been running with his messaging and 
uh, running, I think, one of the best Senate campaigns in uh, in, in recent history. Uh, if he c- cannot pull that off against J.D. Vance, that's going to set a very bad tone for the Democrats going forward. Um, and then, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, the Blake Masters uh, Kelly race over in uh, Arizona, plus, uh, you know, a couple other ones, the Fetterman Oz, Oz, obviously, which has got more complex uh, since uh, Oz had his medical incident. And um, it, so, like, we're looking at those races to sit the, set the national tone. And then if you want to just, you know, break it down to Congress as well, there's other, other things that are going to set the national tone. So just to summarize, I think that nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, I think that there's a lot of stuff at play that could tip the scales. Um, in surprises and and all kinds of ways. Uh, But, you know, honestly, a lot of people are just right now with their heads down trying to put the work in. Definitely a a sense of there's a lot of work coming in on on both sides, or potentially you could even say on on three sides, because you have Liz Cheney occupying this weird middle middle ground between the Republican Party of of old and the the Democratic Party of of now. But I wanted to move on slightly. Obviously, this is the, the first election since the, well, some would call it the steal, Others would call it the free, fair election of, of 2020. I think we know where the side of the facts are on, on that particular debate. That has been quite a big issue. You're running against Max Miller in Ohio's seventh, who has somewhat of a, a link to various elements of election disapproval, uh, which is something of a worry. But there seems to be a rise of candidates who would seek to either overturn or call the election invalid in both the House, Senate, and at many different levels up and down the ballot. So I wonder how important do you feel this race is, given that we're seeing the rise of Lauren Boebert in, and Marjorie Taylor Greene still continuing her rise in, in Congress at the moment? Well, oh, first I want to just correct a word that you said. You said election disapproval. No, they're, they're, they're election deniers. And so uh, when you don't have, and you're making claims about the faith of our election system and still trying to run races in our election system and then if you lose you say that that it was a rigged election you i don't know what the hell you're doing even running run a race and i don't know why you're being a participant in our democracy uh, so uh, my opponent has is, is full on a denier says it says that his previous boss won the election um and that it was stolen from from them uh there's a congressperson in texas uh dan, dan crenshaw uh who is republican He's he's part of the, he's part of this whole like I, I want to call it a WWE hype uh, politician sort of uh, uh, you know marketing that is out there and he came out just the other day and said look everybody on the back end behind closed doors knows this was a lie knows that they're making this up for you know headline purposes and if he's a Republican coming out to say that saying that this is just something that a narrative that they're running with we have serious issues on what kind of areas, narratives that are being allowed to be run with and what we're tolerating as a democracy so we have to win. When you ask the rise of Lowen Bobert or or whatever, look, they're 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 just honestly they're they're just um they're 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 made up characters that are promoting a narrative that does not fit with anything that is going to be good policy for the country. And so, th- this election honestly, hopefully, has a refer- referendum on do we trust the electoral process and our democracy here in the U.S. or do we not? And last thing I want to comment on that is. Look, I know many people across the aisles from from the left, the right, the Trump, the the, the Trump supporters uh, to not Trump supporters. Right. Um, and, they, and anybody who has ever worked the polls or worked in, in the elections have come out saying that they trust this system. They trust this system. They go in there skeptical, but they come out going, yeah, no, these are these are fair, fair elections. And this process is pretty sound. 
And so if anybody still believes that, I volunteer, be part of the process, go sign up to be a poll worker or go sign up to do something else and and, and see how this process works. And I think that you'll come out with more enlightened. It certainly, it seems to be certainly on the Democratic side, there is a, a major push here to make sure that this is the referendum on trust and integrity in both the electoral system and you can say in, in certain areas of, of political policy. But I want to turn to your individual campaign for Ohio's 7th now. Um, your campaign on your website says it's all about putting policy over politics. Now, I think you may be able to interpret, well, not interpret, but uh, anticipate the question I'm about to ask. Sounds like a political slogan rather than a policy. What does that look like in practice, putting policy over politics? Well, it's definitely a political slogan. <laughs> That's why it's nice three words and it rolls off the tongue. <laughs> uh, but in practice, and then, you know, when, when I'm on the when I'm out there talking to people, what is what does that mean? Look, you're over there in, in the UK. And, and, and I think that the United States was founded not on the bike or the, the two party system that we have, but it was founded on a representative system that people were supposed to represent the areas and the places that they come from and work with the work with other people. So for example, um, in parliament, you guys have, you know, political parties, and they're not, and if somebody doesn't have the, the, the majority of everything, they have to work with the other parties to get things done to get policies, you know, uh, pushed through. And so when the founders of, of the United States and our Constitution, did, they did never thought that a uh, representative from New York would think the same way as a representative from Virginia, even if they're both Democrat, or a representative from Virginia is the same way as Ohio, or Ohio and Los Angeles, right? And so it was envisioned that these representatives of these districts in these specific culturally, um, geographically unique areas would have to work with one another, but still push and promote their uh, local re and regional uh, issues with their, you know, from coming from the, their their constituents, and so to put policy over politics means that we have to get on the ground here in Ohio Seventh to try to talk to the people within Ohio Seventh to make policy that re represents and re reflects Ohio Seventh, and that does not mean reflecting the politics of of a Democrat from New York City or a Democrat from uh, Hollywood. It, it says how what is a Democrat and what is a policy look like on a vote in Washington that represents the people of Ohio 7th. And to do that, we have to talk to people, we have to get on the ground, we have to bring people together from both sides of the aisle, from the different demographics that we have, the different geographies, the different industries, take that to Washington and advocate for our district in Washington when it comes to bills as well in policy. So that's what policy over politics is. So I so say probably the founding fathers would probably say, what in the world's Los Angeles, if you ask them uh, how the Democrats would vote from there. But certainly that is something that I think your, your party's, well, certainly nominal leader at the moment, Joe Biden, is suggesting is, is something he was trying to move towards in 2020, this sort of purpleization of American politics over being necessarily Democrat or, or Republican, but American and putting the, the interests first. But now with these very strict sort of messaging things that are coming out from Sometimes at the very top, we see uh, Nancy Pelosi trying to enforce her, her ways of, of pushing forward legislation through her role as House Speaker. We see Joe Biden now trying to uh, indicate where he would like the Democratic Party to move. Is there a, a danger that by pushing for this, this, perhaps what you would see as greater toleration and acceptance across the political aisle, that you lose what it is to be defined as a Democrat? Or is that something that people would would just not see from your campaign? Look, coming from over here from Ohio, I think that uh, we don't want to be defined 
as anything. And I think that's one of the problems with, uh, with, with these two-party systems is that you have great candidates on both sides that are looking at these specific regions, areas, as I said, um, and that's why I put Virginia as one of the first uh, uh, examples in New York, not uh, Los Angeles, by the way. I, the dates are important. Um, but are looking at the regions and saying, look, it, it really sucks that you have this person who's been born and raised in a certain area, trying to represent a certain constituency that they grew up as, and, and, and you get labeled with a brand by these people who are from Nancy Pelosi from California is creating this whole democratic narrative that doesn't represent Ohio. Look, Ohioans, for example, are, are not that. We're, we don't want to be branded. We have so many unaffiliated that are voting right now. For example, I think one third of the people that have voted, early voted, are unaffiliated. They're not a D or an R. They're people who says, I'm going to try to vote for the best guy. I'm going to you know, see what I feel in this election. Or and I don't want to be classified you know, for the most part. And I get that more and more. I'm independent. I'm independent. And that's because you don't want to be branded with a, you know, a, a, a color, red, blue, a, a letter, DR, and so on and so forth, and fit into every other ideology. So in all fairness, there is an old guard of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Uh, there is the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's and the Mitch McConnell's that all have to go retire somewhere and let this new generation come over with, the, with what we think is of uh, how America should um, be represented. And yeah, look, <laughs> I, can't, I can't stress that enough. You know, 40, 40 plus years uh, in Washington is too long and, and, and these old guard, 80 years old or so, they, it's, it doesn't represent anymore. So that's why there's a lot of people uh, either becoming either unaffiliated, uh, you know, pushing for a different kind of uh, talking points or, or, or politics or uh, trying to represent a different way outside of these, uh, I guess, boxes that we're put into. So I guess that's sort of a, a tacit thank you for your service, Ms. Pelosi, but maybe it's time to, to think about handing the baton, I guess, from, from what you're saying. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that, that are in there to say thank you for your service, but it's time to. And I think that's why a lot more Americans are saying let's go with term limits. Uh, obviously, campaign finance reform is, is a big issue, too. There's a lot of things that just allows uh, entrenched power to create dictations of, of the uh, political ideology uh, from that is not representative of the different places in uh, America. So yeah, thank you for your service. Uh, but it's time for both uh, the McConnell and the Schumers and the Pelosi's and there you got it's time to, time to move on. I think we will move on from the national issues to some of your specific issues that you've raised on your on your campaign website, which I've had a, a good look through and trying to find out how how best to, to ask you these questions. Um, my first question was going to be, is one of your statements a, a veiled swing at the Democratic leadership for being too hegemonic? But there we go. Um, you've answered that one. I don't think it's too already. veiled. <laughs> but yeah, um, with this relief for working Americans, uh, from the pump to the grocery store, you're paying more. Nice, nice slogan. I, I think it's catchy, certainly. Congress needs to act. Obviously, a lot of people are going to say, turn around to you running as a Democrat, uh, despite your sort of slightly, well, not necessarily in the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party in terms of staying nice and in line behind one, uh, one person in the leadership and say, well, hang on, it's your party, it's your president, and it's your houses of, of Congress right now, especially on things like budgetary issues, which only have to go through the House, which is much more secure at present for the, the Democrats. How would you convince those voters who turn around and see that, again, little D in a, in a pair of parentheses next to your name and say, well, hang on, aren't you the guys who are meant to be sorting it out already? Well, I guess that goes back to policy over politics. And we have to figure out what we're doing and what we want, we're, want America uh, to, to go to. 
So let's uh, look at like something like the CHIPS Act. We need to onshore our supply chain and our semiconductors. There's no question about that. It cannot be centralized. And even for you guys over in the UK, it can't be centralized in Taiwan or Japan. It can't, right? Um, and it, because when, when it is, and there is a point of failure and one single point of failure, it, it ripples through everybody's economies. It has to come onshore. And so if we all agree that's a, that's a thing that we need to do for not only our businesses, but national security, then passing the CHIPS Act was very important to make sure that the Intel plant over here in uh, outside of Columbus, Ohio, is getting built and bringing those jobs and then going to employ people that for, there for uh, hopefully uh, decades or generations um, and, and all those you know auxiliary businesses that are going to be built up around it. That was an important legislation to pass. If we all agree, red or blue, RD, <laughs> that that's something we need to do. When it comes to you know uh, different policies as well, so I, I think what you're what you're really asking is how do we cre create consensus among the populace of what is important for America right now, and 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 the only way we can do that is to talk to each other, right, and figure out where the goals align. And so when somebody says I am paying more at the pump, or my my food is too high, or my food prices are too high at the moment, uh, we have to think about. How do we protect that in the future? And what do we put in place in policy-wise to protect that in the future? Pump too high, energy independence. Again, if we're if we're uh, you know relying on, on Saudi oil or OPEC or or whatever, or um, you know a, a war breaking out in in Europe, and, and that will affect our you know gas prices. Or if we have you know a down, or or if the oil companies or the gas companies have you know a down couple of years because of a pandemic. And now they have to recoup their their money because or their earnings for their shareholders, and that's going to be gouging people at the pump. We have to figure out alternatives. And what does that look like? I don't know the answers of what that actually looks like going forward, but I do know that's a conversation we have to have. have. And if we can get consensus around what that looks like, then we pass the policy for it. Certainly, uh, an insight into that little particular part of your your website. We're going to go down a couple more of those those policy lists and see if we can sort of dig behind the the very nicely presented website to see what's sort of underneath in terms of things like uh, a statement you say uh, making a, a living wage for all Americans or a livable wage, not being paid a wage of starvation, as you put it on on your campaign site, but a, a living wage. Now, you've, you've admitted on there that it'll be different for plenty of local areas. You, you might not necessarily expect a living wage in sort of rural Wyoming to be the same as, again, maybe to Los Angeles or, or New York, something like that, as we all appreciate costs and, and prices being slightly different. But from a, a federal level, which is where you would be acting in Congress should you win this election, is there something to be said for maybe a minimum universal level that no state or city can go below? Or would you just think that's too much to intervene? You'd have people uh, making a mockery of, of the system. How would you seek to get this livable wage? Well, I think that we have to think about this in uh, multifaceted. Uh, first, you're, you're, um, you're implying a federal minimum wage and are raising that federal minimum wage of, you know, from what it is, $7.25 an hour right now to a certain amount. And I think that you alluded to it earlier that a Wyoming, Los Angeles, uh, New York, Ohio, uh, they have different standards of uh, co cost of living. And I am and I have been always for like a I don't think that uh, the federal government should really mandate a lot of these kind of uh, economic issues to the states uh, for the regional for the regional purposes, but almost more give them guidelines of how to operate, right? And so for example, if 
Ohio's seventh district and how it's drawn. And I think that maybe these guidelines could actually make our districts in, in these gerrymandering issues a little bit more fair if we tied their um, these guidelines to what the, the districts look like. For example, if we wanted a standard minimum wage for um, Ohio's seventh district, you know, match that to CPI um, and then um, uh, and then um, adjusted for inflation over, you know, going forward, um, what, what would that look like? You know, and, and what, what's in that bucket for your CPI? We're talking about rent and, and, you know, your cell phone bill, insurance, and so on and so forth. What does that look like? Is that a $12 an hour? Is that a $8 an hour? Is that a $20 an hour? We actually don't know. And I can tell you right now, if we figure that out for Ohio's seventh, I, I, California's 47th is going to be different, right? And so I think that a federal, a federal guess, um, guideline of what is in that bucket and have the states try to work that out of how to take that bucket and apply it to these different districts or regions, I think will be a better thing than saying, hey, everybody's $15 an hour. Again, because, you know, the different regions have different costs of living and, and, and so on and so forth. Also different just, policies, state policies and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just just on, on that point, there will be many people who will, will hear that and say, that sounds fine, but maybe they don't have a particularly favorable political opinion of different leaders across the United States. So they would assume that leaders in, in some states would be trying to undercut that minimum wage to just boost the economy and forget the, the living wage type that we're trying to put in or that this policy is trying to put in here. And others would say, well, no, actually, some other states will price out working businesses just by trying to put in a livable wage or what they claim to be the livable wage. How would you seek to address that, which we would probably see as, as some form of wage inequality to a, a greater or lesser extent across America based on these political decisions from, again, you would be doing this from a federal standpoint rather than from a, a state standpoint if you're elected to this, this position? So I, I think what you're, what you're saying is, is how are the politicians in other states going to either screw over businesses or screw over workers? Well, I and think that's certainly something that people will say is likely to happen because there's a lot of polarization right now in America, as I think you'll agree. So my, my, I, the answer to any of to that question always is going to be to vote. These are elected officials that you put into power or put into a, a, a place of uh, representation. You vote their asses out of office if they're screwing over your businesses or screwing over your workers. There's no other choice to that. Every every policy you put in place, you can say, hey, slippery slope. What if we, they screw us over? Yes. What if they screw us over? Do we think that $7.25 an hour right now is the, the ultimate minimum wage or we should get rid of the minimum wage? We can have that discussion as well. Um, and then, you know, and then have the market figure it out. That's not what I'm saying here is I'm saying that what we need to do is create a standard for states to implement from region to region, state to state, and they can implement it. Now, the only thing that we can say there is it's up to the people. The people have the power to vote people in, that people vote people out, that, in, that have their interest in mind. And it's a business interest, a social interest, a personal interest, a worker interest, a union interest. And so, yeah, we can slippery slope all day. At the end of the day, it's up to the vote and going to the polls. So I think turnout's going to be... Actually, where, where would you say turnout's going to be in this election? Because you've been on the ground, you've been you've been knocking on doors. Are people energized to vote this time around or is it a bit sort of oh not again 
you know, I, I, I feel that their people are energized, but then here's the thing is, is when you're, when you're working in, when you're doing what I'm doing, you, you, you put yourself into a bubble, an artificial bubble, a bubble of people who's always talking about policy, a bubble that's always people that's talking about getting to be to the full polls, a bubble of people that's always knocking doors, a bubble of people that, that knows the ins and outs of all the political rigmarole. Um, and I think that by being in that bubble, and this is the bubble that people talk about all the time is when you become a, a politician, you become, uh, you know, um, you 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 don't re- relate to what's happening on the ground sometimes. And so during a campaign, I don't think we're the best person to ask if there's any enthusiasm because we're all enthusiastic in one way or the other. That's actually a really useful insight. Because again, I, d- I did a little bit of background research on you. And I think this is the first time you've stepped into that bubble in terms of running for a position like this, for certainly for federal level, as far as I could see. I, I'm not sure whether thing maybe slightly lower down on the state level that I might have missed. Apologies if I if I did. No, you're right. But, um, Good research. How has it been making that transition from? <laughs> Phew. Uh, how has it been making that that transition from sort of ordinary day to day life and doing your nine to five or whichever jobs that you'd be going to, and then suddenly everything is about how can I represent people of a higher seventh and how can I get into Congress to do it? Um, that's an interesting question. I actually don't know how to answer that. I think that uh, home life has changed. Um, you know, personal life has absolutely changed. It, 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 it's, I honestly don't know how to answer that. It, it, any, any transition, any transition in life is a transition, right? And you have to, and there's good bads and you have to weather it. So like, this is not, this is no different than, you know, graduating high school and going to college, you know, or, or graduating college and going back, going to work, you know, there's, there's pain points and there's, there's good points, right? And you just, weather, you weather it, you, 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 but you, you know, put your shoes on, you keep marching forward, you know? So I think it's, I think that's the way I look at it. This is not uh, any kind of transition. And so if we transition from, uh, you know, a, a congressional candidate to a congressman, I'm going to have that uh, transition as well. And if I uh, transition from a congressional candidate to uh, a failed con- congressional candidate, I'm going to have that transition as well. So uh, it, it's, no, it's no different than any transition, I think, that you have in life. I think it's... It's always useful to get that sort of insight of when people, that everyone talks about the bubble, whether it's the Westminster bubble in the UK, the Washington bubble, sort of Beltway bubble as well. Uh, it's always interesting to sort of peek behind the veil and see what's, what's there, how it's, all, how it's all going. But yes, you seem to be adapting to it quite nicely. You're out there producing some good campaign videos, knocking on doors, getting the, the message to go to the polls. Um, slightly less cringy than, than Hillary Clinton with her Pokemon Go reference back in, <laughs> in 2016 as well. Um, I, I did want to mention one one thing specifically, and this was uh, something put forward, I believe, by Senator Tammy Baldwin. It's the Dairy Pride Act, which is mentioned specifically on on your campaign website. And I'll just read it. So I'll, I'll, well, I'll read some of it. I won't read the whole bill uh that would take a bit of a while but it's defending against imitations and replacements of yogurt milk and cheese to promote regular intake of dairy every day or that act to protect the integrity of dairy products by enforcing existing labeling requirements so in a phrase essentially it's making sure that if it comes from an animal it can be labeled milk yogurt or cheese but if it's not from that so nuts seeds plants algae it would no longer be able to be called milk yogurt or cheese or other dairy related terms and please feel free to correct me if i if i mischaracterize the um the policy we've got 
hear a push for nutritional, well, a push against this nutritional equivalency, which is labelled in the act as, as inaccurate, this shift from um, what is in the dairy food group to what is not in the dairy food group. And I wonder, there's been a lot of, of change recently as to what we're seeing on our, our high street shelves in our stores and in our supermarkets as to now there are so many different varieties of, of milk. And one thing that may well be doing is, as you say on your website, potentially harming the farming, the dairy farmers in your district uh, and in America. But what it might also be doing is is providing that real alternative for making that that change to potentially a more environmentally friendly option, but without having to say, no, I'm having oats, whatever the the replacement term would be, whilst keeping it nice and, and familiar. How how do you feel about sort of squaring a, a circle that may or may not be being drawn by everyone, but is being drawn by some? I think that the first of all, Wayne County is a massive dairy producer, and that's my my district. Um, so, but he, here's what I think that we the question we should be asking: How much leeway do we continue to give the laboring and the marketing industry at the at the expense of our either health or pocketbook? Or our understanding of food. For example, like how long have we had, I don't know if you guys have it in the UK, but here we have something called natural, natural and artificial flavors. What the hell does that even mean, natural flavors? Right? And so if somebody says naturally flavored or natural flavors or natural whatever, it's it's on the box, it's, it's marketed, right? And so we think that instinctually, you think that I'm getting something natural. Nature, nature is good for me. I'm eating something good. I, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to take that off the box. Let's say, hey, this is bullshit. This is not natural. <laughs> or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or some of the ingredients that we have in there. Or just understanding of like how to eat in health and and our intake of, of, of protein to fiber to carbs and, and what, what have you. And, and so, look, uh, I think that the willy-nilly use of the word milk um, is kind of, is one of those things that we have to go like, 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 is this milk? Is it milk? What is milk? Milk is something... That is produced by a, a mammal, right? And, and and it's not produced by by an almond. <laughs> I've never had almond. Like, like, what is that? You know. And so we, I think we just have to be honest with ourselves. And 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 marketing it has can get carried away with you know making us think that something is a way to make us feel better about consuming it. Um. So there's a lot of like marketing practices. Um. The, the, here's another one that uh, that that irritates me. I see up to a lot, up to a hundred percent effective. What does up to 100% effective mean? That That is an absolute, first of all, you have 100% on there. That's the natural thing you're going to gravitate to. And, but it says up to in front of it. That is absolutely being, you're being bamboozled with this. So not just talking about the specific act. I think we have to talk about marketing and labeling that is purposely dubious to the consumer to make them be tricked into something's efficacy, something's product category, something's um, nutritional benefits, and so on and so forth, so that consumers can make better and more educated choices. If you're making a product that is crap and it's crap for the person or it's crap, like, let's make sure it's labeled property, properly or you can make better products, right? Um, and if it isn't this certain product, then you can make that product better. And, and you know, it's all about marketing. It's about making a good good thing. So if almond milk is actually better for you, you, you don't, we don't have to call. We can say this, this almond, whatever you want to put it there, the marketers will figure it out. But I, I really understand that, you know, somebody who has a, a dairy farm or, or you know, um, with, with cows or goats or, or whatever is kind of going like, this isn't milk, man. I, I, my, my family's been doing this for generations. This is milk. 
Um, this is cheese. This is butter. You know, and it's it's, it's kind of like a yeah. I, mean, I think we're gonna have we're gonna see that slippery slope as well when it comes to like the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers as well. Like if what they call it if it said it, Impossible Meat. <laughs> or you know, or, or, or it is what it is. It's beyond burger, you know. So it's like, we understand what this is first, and people need to have that education without the marketing's kind of like putting a veil over it. I think it's, it's certainly something that we're going to see more and more as these products continue to become more and more sort of mainstream on our shelves. So it's it's good to have a little insight into one of the the, the various opinions around that that particular issue. So thank you for that. Um, coming towards the end of of the time that we've got together but i just wanted to talk about the race itself so obviously you're up against max miller former trump aide and all that that comes with that which i'm i'm sure is is well actually i was going to say it might be not playing too well on the doorstep but given that ohio's 7th went i think 66% to donald trump back in 2020 perhaps it's a, an uphill battle and certainly that's what 538 aggregates your chances of winning at unfortunately it, they put you at two percent chance of, of a victory in this race and when the last time a democrats won ohio seventh is 1936 it's got to be a little bit demoralizing sometimes so you there's got to be something about you what makes you believe you can break that 86 year drought well first we, let's, let's take this back uh ohio seventh has already been changed and it's been redistricted so when uh for the past decade it was represented by uh uh, uh, representatives that were in a plus eight R18 district, right? So means it's 18% le leaning Republican. To break that kind of barrier is, is, is hard. Now we are in now with the redistricting and all, an R plus seven, an R plus seven. Um, there has been many races and important races around the country that has flipped R plus seven uh, districts, right? Um, and, and with the baggage of my opponent, um, uh, personal and professional, we, we feel that this is a very winnable and doable race, right? Um, because of all that baggage. Now, look, we're not saying that this is an easy lift. He it has the connections. He's a, he's a rich kid himself, you know, come from legacy money to one of the most powerful families uh, in the history of Cleveland. <laughs> Plus, he worked for the ex-president of the United States, who just happened to be a billionaire himself. Uh, so the money, the money differential is, is oh, and he's, he's married to one of the richest people in Northeast Ohio as well. Uh, so, like the money differential is something that we can't take out of the equation. Like, he has a, he has a funding advantage, but I always tell people like, look, we have this race. We have the we it is it is what it's going to be. But now we have to look at the fundamentals of the race, the fundamentals of the candidates, their backgrounds, their histories, um, and then we and then I really honestly believe that uh, presented with the proper facts, the electorate will make the 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 the, the best choice. And so that's what's given us hope is knowing that we are running a good race. We have, I, I have a diverse and rich background that can take to Washington and, and bring a lot of, I think, very good um, clarity to policy, um, as well as don't come with all the baggage that he does. So, so that's what's given us uh, us hope, uh, being hopeful for this. I think being being hopeful is is something that I think every candidate wants to take into election day, certainly. And again, you all start on zero votes. No one starts with a, a majority in a brand new election. So there we go. There's some things to, to look forward to and think, well, you know, election day is just around the corner. And I certainly, I'll be up all night. I'll be keeping a close eye out and seeing what happens in, in Ohio's seventh congressional district. Oh, I awesome, end man. On... Send me a text when you, when you, when you find out the news. Oh, absolutely. Don't worry. I'll be live on air. <laughs> I'll be live on air. Oh, cool, um, man. 
we've got a couple of pop questions to end this particular one with and it's a little bit of fun it's a little bit more relaxed you can take it there's not going to be a, a massive scrutiny of, of policy or of, of choice here um we'll start with who's your favorite democrat right now you're running for the democratic party there's got to be you can pick a group of people if you want but out of anyone who's sort of either at state level or national level who is it you're looking at and thinking yeah that's why i'm a member of this party right now Barack obama fair enough i mean that's the, i mean that's no, a nice he's, he's, straightforward he's, he's, right down the nose yeah. I mean, look, that 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 guy came back on 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 the on the campaign trail the past couple of weeks, and you understood why he was the president of the United States. You understood why he, uh, you know, gave so many people hope. You understood why uh, he was. You, you understand the skills that he had, the the, the temperament he had, the, the 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 way of speaking. Um, yeah, Barack Obama. I rather feel that that um sort of means that my my question of your favorite president in American history may well go the same way. Yes, no. Is it is it a different person? Uh, no, it's probably the same person. Yeah, you know, and I I don't want to. We, we, let's 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 take this back. Chipping away at policies, you know, we can go back to Kennedy. Um, we could also, you know, Eisenhower. We can uh, go to you know Obama. You know, the, the policies and individual policies within an administration can be scrutinized, you know, in a lot of different ways. So let's take that out really quick when it comes to the policy. The person, right? The the way that he presented himself, the way that he represented America, you know, abroad, uh, the way that you would feel proud of who he was when you went abroad or or different places and said, yeah, I'm I'm American and Barack Obama is my president. And when he got on TV, you were happy when he got on TV and you were like, that is my president of the United States. Uh, so so yeah, I, I I would use that criteria of how he made the nation look, how he presented the nation, uh, how he spoke about the different issues here. In a calm yet um, uh, nuanced manner, and I was—I think he would be my favorite. And I mean, we, we've talked about working across the aisle quite a bit in in this interview. So, for a last question, your favorite Republican at state level, national level, but they've got to still be be doing something right now. You can't go back and pick Lincoln. That's 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 too easy. That's a that's a catch-all answer. Anyone who's at state level, as I say, national level. Who's your favorite? Who would you most like to sit down and, and work something over with? Huh. Right now. Oh yeah. Asking all the tough questions at the very last last moments so you can't run. No, this is okay. this is this is a good one. You know, I never really thought of my I I never think of like favorites when it comes to these things because policy is policy is so nuanced that everybody brings yeah. something to the table. So it's like even if I say Barack Obama or you know a Democrat, it's still like what's the nuance of policy and how they discuss it, and that's very important. Um, so um, I would say that there's two people um, that are in politics right now. One is the outgoing, the outgoing congressman here from Ohio's uh, 16th district, uh, Anthony Gonzalez. Um, he has a very interesting background. Uh, he had he was a two term congressperson that retired um, after he voted to impeach Donald Trump. Um, his his votes as of late have been very reflective, I think, of his true politics. Um, uh, and I think a divergence of, I think, party politics that he tried to get himself into and I think he felt uncomfortable with. And so I'd really want to, you know, sit down and talk to him about that journey and, and, and see where he where he's where he landed on the state of affairs within uh, our democracy of, of party politics and, and policymaking. Uh, I think that the other person would probably be um, Dan Crenshaw from Texas. Uh, I, I think that he is a when he first came on the scene, he was a very thoughtful um, nuanced um, individual. 
he did turn into the WWE style uh, politician uh, that's, you know, getting trying to get clicks and, 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 and so on and so forth. And I think that he went a little bit off the rails. Um, they call him cringe Shaw, right? So uh, I, I don't know where he, what made him take that turn. But him, I think, at the core of who he who he is that made him jump into uh, politics and to run for 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 Congress uh, is somebody I would like to sit down with and, and, and you know just hash out some different uh, policies or you know just talk about his journey and and, and where he feels that uh, he and the country should go. So I think those are my two, my two. Very very well fielded on the the tricky minefield of those last three last three questions. Uh, but that is, I believe, our time coming to an end. I know you've got a very busy, or I'd imagine you've got a very busy day, couple of days left in you of either standing outside polling stations or getting yourself knocking on doors in those last last few hours today. So I, I'll let you go. And thank you very much for your time appearing on the Politics Unbox podcast. Well, thank you, sir, for having me. It was a lot of fun. Good to meet you. So that was the interview from Politics Unboxed with Matthew Deemer, candidate for United States Congress, the House of Representatives for Ohio's 7th District. Thank you again to Matthew for appearing on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then you know where to find other great content from the Politics Unboxed family by going to www.politicsunboxedpodcast.wordpress.com or on Instagram at politics.unboxed. You can find us on Twitter at politicsu or you can find us on Facebook by searching for Politics Unboxed. Thank you for listening, and we will see you around for the next episode very soon.